Welcome back to Season 3 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $70 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to and partners of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest this week. My guest is a leading early-stage investor in technology businesses powering the insurance and financial industries. He attended Michigan undergrad and got an MBA from the University of Connecticut. He spent time early in his career in various investment positions at Aetna from the early 80s to the late 90s. He then went to Cigna, where he led their retirement and investment services business, which was sold to Prudential in 2004. He led the integration of those two businesses through 2007, at which point he joined New York Life as the CEO of their investment management business in April of 2008. He therefore had a front row seat to managing an investment portfolio right into the teeth of the global financial crisis. Over his decade at New York Life, he became its president, vice chairman, and chief investment officer. In 2019, he launched Brewer Lane Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm focused on businesses involved in insurance and financial services. He also serves on the board of a number of enterprises, including Franklin Templeton and Eversource Energy, as well as the Northeast Center for Children. So without any further ado, I'm happy to welcome John Kim, the founder and managing partner of Brewer Lane Ventures. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Colbert. Thank you for being here. Well, let's go back to the beginning. How did you end up at Michigan undergrad? What was the draw there for school for you? Well, that was an easy decision for me because I grew up outside of Detroit. And back in the late 70s and early 80s, Michigan was really the only school that I considered. And importantly, I got a scholarship from that fine institution. So as opposed to coming out east or going to Chicago, that was a very easy decision for me. And you went to the business school there, John, is that right? I did. So back then, the business school was not something that you applied to, especially as an undergraduate business major out of high school. So I did my first two years in the liberal arts college and then applied to the business school for my junior and senior years. And what was the appeal there? What drew you to the business world? I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan in the late 70s to be a doctor as uh, my parents wished. And I failed miserably in second semester in organic chemistry, took accounting that following spring term and determined I was pretty good with numbers. So that sort of allowed me to segue into the business school. Fair enough. So then you went on to earn a graduate degree as an MBA. Did you work post-college or did you go straight to University of Connecticut after? No, no. I, I was fortunate enough after graduating from University of Michigan uh, in 1983 to have a number of uh, job opportunities. I was uh, probably the first class post the 81 recession where there were opportunities that were relatively plentiful. And I tell folks, I should have been a good Midwestern banker coming out of, of Michigan. But I took a job with the old Aetna organization which allowed me to do some insurance underwriting initially and then move into the investment organization in fairly short order. So I got my MBA at UConn actually while I was still working full time at the old Aetna. I got it. Okay. So then for those less familiar, Aetna in the early 80s, what was the organization that you joined? Yeah, that was the place to be for those of us who remember The 60s and 70s and even the 80s, it was dominated by, in the insurance industry, by large multi-lines. So a Prudential, a MetLife, 
Cigna, Travers, Aetna were all very large multi-line insurers. And as a result of the sheer size of the, the insurance entities, they had very large asset management organizations as well, too. And it sounded like pretty quickly you went over to the investing side or how much time did you spend on underwriting? Yeah, I did. Right. Not too long on the insurance side, about a year and a half, two years. And I was fortunate enough to go into the core of the investment area at the Aetna, which was something called the private placement area. So private bond lending activity. And I went into the private placement area about two years into my Aetna career. And then rose up through the ranks here, you know, the traditional sort of career track that one has as an investor. You start as an analyst, an associate, you become a senior associate, and then you go into portfolio management. So I had a very natural sort of career progression in the first few years within the Aetna organization. And that's investing primarily in fixed income or what were the underlying assets? Yeah, that it would uh, be primarily exclusively fixed income, uh, private fixed income. Okay. So you did that for about 10 years. And then if I have my chronology right, you spent some time on Wall Street, right? You came over to Payne Weber. Tell me about that experience. Sure. Yeah. It's one of those classic sort of situations where when you're with one company, you often wonder whether you're just lucky or good having risen through the organization in relatively short measure. Executive recruiter called me and said, well, you've got a really nice fixed income background and a good track record. Why don't you come to the other side of the equation as opposed to investing in house money, you know, manage third-party money, institutional fixed income and some retail fixed income as well. One of the nice boutiques, fixed income boutiques that was in existence back in the early 90s was Mitchell Hutchins, which was the investment subsidiary of Payne Weber, which ultimately got sold to UBS. And I had the good fortune at a fairly young age to lead the institutional fixed income side of Mitchell Hutchins. So that's the job that I took. Fair enough. Okay, so you did that and then you came back to Aetna, but in a different arm, if I understood it correctly. Tell me about Altus Investment Management and what you were doing there in the late 90s. Sure, yeah. This is a classic example, Colbert, of never burn one's bridges here. My boss, who was the chief investment officer, one of the, the investment subsidiaries of the Aetna had retired, and they were you know, looking, you know, searching for his replacement. And lo and behold, they came back to me and said, why don't you come back home and get promoted to being the CIO of the old Aetna life and insurance and annuity complex. And that gave me an opportunity to really step up into a senior leadership role back at the Aetna, leading one of the significant investment subsidiaries of the Aetna at that time. And so that probably more so than anything allowed me to catapult my career because that job was essentially an investment boutique, a job where I was both the CIO and the CEO at a fairly young age in the mid-30s. And tell me about your responsibility set then. So you're managing a portfolio, I imagine, but then what else did you have to do in that CEO role? So that was a combination of both managing internal money, what I would call house money, and also having third-party dollars or clients. And that subsidiary was called Altus Investment Management. It was about a $50 billion entity managing against both internal and external money. And I was both the CIO, Chief Investment Officer, and the CEO. And so that was probably the first large job where I had significant P&L responsibility. 
In addition to that, I had fairly significant leadership responsibility as well, too. The Payne Weber, Mitchell Hutchins job was a team of about a dozen people where the Altus Investment Management, I led an organization of 150 people. I'm always interested in how, you know, CEOs and leaders manage the various responsibilities. How much time did you have to spend on investing versus fundraising versus managing your team? How do you do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's something that I actually, as a relatively young CEO, had to learn and probably learn through some mistakes that I made early on. Clearly, when you're a CIO and CEO of an asset management franchise, you really have to, first and foremost, focus in on the investing activities. So making sure that the investment themes that you're focusing on are the right themes, that you lead the investment organization as the the head of all the investing activities. So that would be one part. Being a CEO of an asset management franchise, though, as I mentioned a minute ago, really requires that you have a deep understanding of what it takes to be successful in gathering assets, gathering the clients, and then holding on to those assets, holding on to those clients. So that was largely a sales and marketing and customer relationship management function. But the last part of this is, as we would all agree, asset management is a profession where the net worth, the franchise value of the organization comes up the elevator every morning and leaves every at the end of the day. And it's all about people management. And so I would have parsed my activities as I came into the role fully would be one-third investment activity, a third on sort of sales and marketing or the business management activities, and a third really would be leadership people management. Now, John, before joining Cigna, you briefly were at Bonbook, a 2001 vintage startup. Tell me about that business. What were you doing back then? I was actually thinking about after I had left the old Latin organization as it sold to ING back in the year 2000, that I would start up my own asset management boutique, actually. Bonbook at that time, if you remember back then, was this is .com 1.0, if you will, yep. right? And Bondbook was essentially an anonymized corporate trading, a bond trading platform that was, was set up by the largest banks on Wall Street at that time, led by Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and six other institutional investors. Had it been successful, I characterize it as that it would have been the NASDAQ of the bond market. Unfortunately, it failed. Because to a large extent, the market wasn't ready. The marketplace was not ready for a new technology like Bondbook. But also the other unfortunate aspect of Bondbook, it was located to World Financial Center during 9-11. And so we were essentially dislocated and then we never recovered from that. John, so then moving on from Bondbook, you then joined Cigna as the president of the Retirement and Investment Division. What was the appeal of that opportunity at that point in your career? Yeah, the appeal was like in my early 40s, I got to lead a very large organization. And as I mentioned, Altus was a big opportunity, a big jump in my career where I led a fairly large dollars of assets under management and 150 people. 
Signal Investment Retirement because it was both investing and managing the record keeping the retirement assets. Some Fortune 500 companies and other smaller companies was a much larger footprint of over 2,000 people. So that was the appeal. It was also an appeal to me because as opposed to doing just core asset management, it allowed me to focus my attention on an adjacency category, retirement planning, uh, which would be the 401k business and the defined benefit business. So John, you talked about managing a people business. That business was then bought by Prudential. How hard is it to merge people businesses like those two? Incredibly hard. People often talk about M&A activities and combining two organizations. And you can read Harvard Business School case studies or listen to McKinsey podcast to get a sense of like what it takes. Until you've actually gone through an M&A activity, one just doesn't fully appreciate it. I think the lessons learned for me was less about the hard aspects, meaning the hard science, the analytical aspects of an M&A, but the softer issues that's required to be successful. How do you communicate to the combined entity when they both came together was about over 4,000? How do you communicate to a large group of associates and employees of that size? How do you bring two very different cultures together and create one culture that part of the integration is something that, again, is seems easy, but it's actually a lot harder than uh, one could read in a an article or a textbook. Yeah. If it's in a spreadsheet on some level, I always think that's the easy part. It's the everything else that's tricky. So then in the wake of that merger, after five years, you leave to join New York Life as their CEO and CIO. Tell me about New York Life then in 2008. What was the organization you joined? It was a sleepy old 163-year-old organization. It's a mutual insurance company, so they tend to be more conservative than either other publicly traded insurance companies. They were reasonably successful over the years in the investing business, but not as successful as the board and senior leadership wanted. And they wanted somebody who actually had both a combination of insurance, asset management experience, but also third-party experience. And I fit that bill. It was one of the easier sort of discussions that we had because I knew after the first meeting that he was going to offer me the job because we just connected right away. So you joined in early 2008. Hard to imagine joining as a new investment manager at a more complicated time. Tell us about your experience managing an investment portfolio through the global financial crisis. So it was not challenging in the April of 2008, right, Colbert? But then things got out of hand in a hurry. It, absolutely, yeah. That was the proverbial uh, sort of calm before the storm here. I mean, we knew that things were not right. For example, the Bear Stearns uh, hedge fund had collapsed at that time. And so we knew that there were some aspects of the environment that were concerning a bit. But I joined the organization thinking that, you know, I had the mandate of trying to build out the organization, not only organically, but New York Life had a lot of excess capital at that time. So I had a mandate to do some acquisitions as well, too. And at that time, it was, you know, I would say it was a two-part sort of experience for me. One is just leading an asset management franchise 
what you want to do is make sure that you have a stable ship, that it's not going to sink like others. Thankfully, our parent company, New York Life, was as solid as any company. We managed through the depths of the financial crisis from the fall of 2008, probably to the summer or even fall of 2009 very well. And then we had the very good fortune of having capital at that time to deploy to take advantage of the opportunity that was available to us coming out of the financial crisis. And that was probably the one-two punch that really allowed me to do a, what in retrospect was a really good job here because I had a very stable organization in the New York Life Investment Organization to ride out the storm, if you will. But then fairly early on, we took advantage with our excess capital to do some excellent acquisitions in the 2010 to 2014 time period. I mean, it's such an interesting case study, right? Which is that it is a sleepy organization. They probably weren't run as efficiently or as aggressively maybe as some of their peer set. But what a huge advantage going into a moment of market volatility to have the balance sheet to weather the storm, as you say, but then be able to take advantage of the opportunities on the back end. So John, in 2015, you become president and CIO of New York Life overall. How different was that new role and what new responsibilities did that carry? Yeah, dramatically different. I, um, the number of employees that we had on the investment side of the question was about 2,000 at most, including the, the subsidiary boutiques here. And including our agents, we have upwards of 12,000 agents at New York Life. So that was an organization of about 22,000 men and women. So when you get from 150 to, say, 2,500, that's one thing. Going from 2,500 to 22,000, it's just an entirely different leadership orientation, if you will. Yeah, anytime you have an order of magnitude change in your, in your <laughs> reporters. So 2019, you make the decision to launch Brewer Lane Ventures. Let's start by defining some terms for our listeners. It's a venture capital investment firm focused on fintech and tech. What does fintech and tech mean to you, John? Yeah, what that means is, and I should just add that this is early stage, Colbert, but Fintech and tech is anything that touches the financial services industry. So this would be banking, both personal banking, commercial banking, asset management, retirement services, the whole payment ecosystem, and then the health insurance industry, the life and annuity industry, the personal property casualty industry and the like. So anything that would be deemed to be financial services would be in the investable universe for Berlin Ventures. And when we talk about early stage, what we decided to do is invest not in the very early stage, but early enough where we could actually see the business model growing and evolving into a much more mature state. So in venture parlance, that would be primarily Series A or Series B investments. And these would be companies that are just getting started where the product market fit has been proven out. They've already sold a few to a few of the clients here. They might have revenues of anywhere from one to five million. What they need would be an investor who actually knows how to market in the respective financial services verticals can help them with their strategy and go-to-market opportunities. Let me ask you a philosophical question about venture. If I could give you a good business plan with a great management team, 
or a great idea with just a good management team, all else equal, which one would you prefer to invest in? Yeah, always the talents. There's no question about that. One of the reasons why venture capitalists almost sort of categorically give credit to prior successful entrepreneurs. So if you have been party to a successful startup in the past and you're starting a company, we give that individual the benefit of the doubt, you know, almost categorically. Before we move to the last segment of the podcast, I want to take a step back and think bigger picture with you for a second, John. We've had Dick Parsons and Dr. Wayne Frederick from Howard on the podcast recently, and both spoke about what's been a real moment of reckoning on race in American society generally. We've also had several guests on talking about the responsibility of financial institutions to advance values like diversity, equity, and inclusion in a moment like this. And I'm just curious to your perspective, John, both from your own lived experience as well as as a CEO and investor, what should people like us be thinking about on now on these matters? And how should we manage the priorities that, that the last year of reckoning really has created? It's a great question. And I'm sure I couldn't do justice to your other podcast guests in terms of providing the right sort of commentary. For me, this is intensely personal. I'm actually a, an immigrant myself. I came to the United States at a very young age. I was given opportunities beyond belief here in, the, in my professional life. I was a son of a, an academician who actually got his advanced degree here. And so in many respects, I feel like I had to leg up, if you will, because I had the safety net, if you will, both sort of emotionally and from a values perspective of parents and other important people in my life who gave me those important learnings in my formative years. I think the events of the past year is a real opportunity for leaders throughout various disciplines here. I'm, I'm talking about our government officials, corporate leaders, higher education to come together at this moment in time to recognize the very basic inequities that this country has lived through for the past 400 years in many respects here. And so I take this as not only an opportunity, but for me, given my personal background, almost a responsibility to really give back. And it's really cool in the venture world, actually, because in the venture world, unlike hiring people with experience, if you were, you're investing in individuals. And so we're actually seeing a lot of opportunities coming from people of diverse background. And when I say that, I'm talking about gender diversity and racial diversity as well, too. And so I'm trying to do my part by seeking out those diverse opportunities. And I feel like I could really move the needle in my little way because these things are the investment equivalent to acorns that we're planting here, right? And so there's going to be some mighty oak trees here that rise from the seedlings of investments that I'm making early stage fintech. So I think this is a great moment in time that all leaders in industry and in academics and government can come together and seize as that moment in time where we can make our country, our businesses much better 10 years from now than it is today. I think you under promised and over delivered on your comments, John. I think that's really well said. So thank you. Thank you. 
Well, let's move then, John, to the last segment of the podcast, which is something we like to call best ideas. And this is where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. We call it best ideas because as investors, we only hope to add good ideas to the portfolio. But our goal is always to size up and maximize exposure to our best ideas. John, you're our guest. I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week? I think about like the hundreds of books that I've read throughout my sort of professional career. And the one that still comes to mind that is now 30 years old that I still think about and reread parts of on a regular basis, and that would be Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I feel like those the advice that Covey extended 30 years ago when he wrote the book still applies today, perhaps even more so, especially in this world where the businesses uh, and industry are moving so quickly. And so that's probably the one advice or idea that I would extend to your listeners. I think it's a great recommendation, John. It's been a long time since I've read that. And it's maybe a good reminder to revisit as I'm sure my effective habits have slipped. (laughs) So then let me offer up my best idea. As listeners know, I always like to be inspired, at least in part, by the guest of the week. Brewer Lane Ventures is based up in Boston, where actually both my parents are from originally. And I started thinking about Massachusetts and actually summers on Cape Cod, which I love dearly. And and I thought about a great work of nonfiction that I read years ago. So we'll both be erudite this week, John. It's the wonderfully titled Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World by Mark Kurlansky. It's a great title. It's a fascinating read. It's on one level a history of an incredibly important food stock. I mean, it is literally the reason why Europeans first set sail across the Atlantic. But it's basically a world history told through the lens of this simple fish. It's also a deeply moving and honestly sort of tragic story about the collapse of the U.S. and Canadian cod populations being fished to near extinction. I'm always interested in world history through a non-conventional lens, and Kurlansky does a remarkable job in this work. It literally includes like historic and modern cod recipes just to round out the picture. The book actually won the James Beard Award in the late 90s. So inspired by John and the new venture in Boston that he is backing and running and the fish that quite literally made that town what it is, my best idea this week is the book Cod by Mark Kurlansky. John, with that, it's time to say goodbye for the week. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always interesting to hear about what you're doing and how venture investing is driving innovation in insure tech and fintech and your thoughtful words on how to think about responsibilities in this day and age. We very much appreciate as well. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Great to talk. Thanks, John. Thanks again to our guest, John Kim. Check out our show notes to learn more about John and his role at Brewer Lane Ventures. You can find out more about John's best idea, Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And you can also find a link for more about my best idea, the book Cod by the writer Mark Kurlansky. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Listen.